Good morning. The next case is Blue versus Bureau, and we will hear from the appellant. Thank you. <clears throat> May it please the court, my name is Adam Moyers, and I represent defendants Thacurdio, Michael Biro, Dixie, Lee Biro, and Laurel Hill Medical Clinic. At this time, I would ask the court to be allowed to reserve any remaining time I have at the end of my argument not to exceed 10 minutes for rebuttal. I'm here today on behalf of the bureaus and their practice, uh, their physicians, assistants, or PAs, to ask this court to reverse the ruling of the majority of the panel of the Court of Appeals and affirm the trial court's order granting dismissal pursuant to a violation of the statute of limitations. This matter is a medical malpractice action that arises from an elevated prostate-specific antigen, or PSA, test given to the plaintiff in January 24 of 2012. Uh, the bureaus were his primary care providers and ordered that test. He was 61 years old at the time, I believe. Uh, the plaintiff has alleged that the defendants violated the standard of care by failing to provide follow-up care and referrals based on that elevated PSA result. A second PSA test of the plaintiff occurred on March 22, 2018. This was also elevated except to an exponential degree above the original PSA test from January 2012. And according to the complaint, the plaintiff was diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer shortly thereafter. The plaintiff then filed this case on June 17 of 2019, seven years and six months after the original test and one year and three months after the second test. As part of their answer, the defendants moved to dismiss pursuant to Rule 12b-6 based upon plaintiff's claim being time barred by the statute of limitations and repose as set forth in General Statutes 1-52 and 1-15 sub c. Uh, the parties then filed respective memorandums of law with the trial court and the motion was heard by the Honorable Gail Adams on November 12th of 2019. Uh, about a month later by written order Judge Adams granted defendant's motion and dismissed the plaintiff's claims. The plaintiff appealed to the Court of Appeals where a divided panel reversed the trial court on the sole issue that Judge Adams aired by considering matters outside of the pleadings and not converting the motion from a Rule 12b-6 motion to dismiss to a Rule 56 summary judgment proceeding and then allowing more time for discovery to take place. Uh, the majority then ordered the case remanded for further discovery and proceedings consistent with the opinion. Judge Tobias Hampson dissented, and in his dissent, he found that the trial court was not required to convert the motion to dismiss to one for summary judgment, that the underlying motion to dismiss was properly granted as the plaintiff's claims are in fact time barred, and that an oral request for alternative relief to be allowed to amend the complaint to add additional facts did not require an actual ruling from Judge Adams as that was not actually a motion before the court at the time. The bureaus appealed based on Judge Hampson's dissent and we now ask this court to reverse the ruling for the reasons set forth in his dissent and as also set forth in the defendant's brief. 
the threshold question before this court is whether or not Judge Adams was required to convert the motion to dismiss to one for summary judgment. The mere introduction of matters outside of the pleadings will not always convert a Rule 12b-6 motion to one for summary judgment when the record is clear that the trial court did not consider these extraneous materials in ruling on the Rule 12 motion. Uh, that's from the case of Privet versus the University of North Carolina, which is cited both by the majority panel and I think both parties have addressed it in their briefs. So then the inquiry for the reviewing court becomes what matters outside the pleadings were presented to and then considered by the court that will actually result in the requirement of conversion to Rule 56. And so if we turn first to Judge Adams' order to, as the Court of Appeals in the case of Charlotte Motor Speedway Incorporated versus Tyndall Corp. recommended to look for cues to determine whether she considered matters outside the pleadings. And Judge Adams' order is, is, consists of one page, and it's very direct. It's found on page 105 of the Record on Appeal, as well as on page 29 of the appendix to the defendant's new brief. And it simply states, the court, having heard arguments of parties and counsel for the parties, and having reviewed the court file, pleadings, and memorandums of law submitted by both parties, and finds that plaintiff failed to state a claim upon which relief can be granted, and the defendant's motion to dismiss should be allowed pursuant to North Carolina Rule of Civil Procedure 12b-6. Similar language has been found to be sufficient to not require a conversion to Rule 56 by the Court of Appeals. I would turn this Court's attention to that of Carlisle versus Keith, a 2005 case in which the Court of Appeals affirmed the trial court's granting of a motion to dismiss based on the statute of limitations and that a Rule 56 conversion was not required. The trial court's order there stated, very similarly to Judge Adams' order, having reviewed the pleadings, Defendant Brunson's memorandum in support of motion to dismiss, plaintiff's memorandum in opposition to the motion to dismiss, and having heard arguments and statement of counsel, the court concluded that each claim asserted by plaintiff against defendant Brunson fails to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. Similar language again was approved in the previously cited case of Charlotte Motor Speedway versus Tyndall. And there the Court of Appeals affirmed the trial court's granting of a motion to dismiss, again, on statute of limitations grounds, and that a conversion to Rule 56 was not required, where the trial court's order stated, again, almost identically to that of Judge Adams in this case, it appearing to the court, having reviewed the pleadings and the briefs submitted by the parties, and having heard the oral argument by counsel for the parties, that the plaintiff fails to state a claim upon which relief can be granted, and that the motion to dismiss, therefore, should be allowed pursuant to Rule 12b-6. And in construing that order, the Court of Appeals specifically found that the trial court's order was clear, that it was dismissing under Rule 12b-6, and that notably it does not mention any of the evidentiary matter appropriately considered on a motion for summary judgment. And a reviewing court does not simply stop at the order, though that does 
give a pretty good insight into the trial court's thinking and whether it considered extraneous materials. But it also takes a look at and considers the totality of the record on appeal, including the memoranda, any exhibits, and the transcript of the hearing. And so what, what do we mean when we say a matter outside of the pleadings? Well, the jurisprudence of this state shows that it usually consists of affidavits or discovery documents. It may also consist of live testimony, stipulated facts, or documentary evidence in a court's file. And again, that's referring to the case, previously cited case of Carlisle versus Keith, which was quoting G. Gray Wilson's North Carolina <coughs> Civil Procedure, second edition, 1995. So matters that are not traditionally outside of the pleadings include the memoranda of points and authorities, as well as briefs and oral arguments. And again, that's from the Prevet case. So what was before Judge Adams on November 12th of 2019? Affidavits? No. There were no affidavits attached or submitted. Additional evidentiary documents or medical records, such as medical records of Mr. Blue? No. No additional materials separate from the memorandums was submitted to the court. Testimony? No. There was no live testimony at this hearing. Memorandums of law? Yes. Arguments of counsel at the hearing? Yes. And so where it is clear from the record that any additional materials were not considered by the trial court, the Rule 12b-6 motion is not, therefore, converted into a Rule 56 motion. Again, I would point the court to the Court of Appeals ruling in the 2019 case, Estate of Beth versus Boise Cascade Wood Products, for that concept. So let's consider the memorandum of law that was submitted. Once again, these are not generally considered materials outside the pleadings. And when you look at plaintiff's memorandum of law, and I think when you consider the majority opinion of the Court of Appeals as well as the dissent and the briefs, the additional materials that were put before the court, the general, the general impetus for that came from the plaintiff, both in his memorandum of law, arguably, and then in his argument to the court. So in his memorandum of law, there's three portions, and these are found on page 52 and 53 of the record, that arguably contain something that is not specifically alleged in the complaint. And the first of this is a paragraph that begins, plaintiff sought treatment from defendants in November 1996 through to January 2019 for his primary medical concerns, which included urological issues. Plaintiff complained of urological issues following the elevated January 24, 2012 PSA test. The second portion comes from another paragraph on page 52 of the record from plaintiff's memorandum of law, in which he states, we assume defendants may also argue that plaintiff should lose the benefit of the continuous course of treatment doctrine because plaintiff knew or should have known that his PSA was elevated during the course of defendant's treatment. Plaintiff denies any such knowledge. The denial is arguably the new aspect of this, as it was not specifically alleged in his complaint that he did not know. And then finally, as alleged in the complaint, defendants violated the standards of practice on every visit with plaintiff following the elevated PSA on January 24, 2012, 
until the second PSA on March 22, 2018. The evidence will show that plaintiff's last visit with defendants prior to the second PSA test was on March 5, 2018. There was no specific allegation in the complaint that the last visit was on March 5, 2018. When you consider those portions of the memorandum of law with the complaint itself, and the complaint specifically paragraphs 18 and 19, which are found on page 7 of the record on appeal and page 4 of the appendix to the defendant's new brief, he alleged that as of 2019, defendants had been his primary care medical providers for approximately 20 years, and he had been seen for a variety of ailments, routine physical examinations, medical management, and preventative medicine. In paragraph 28 of the complaint, he alleged that defendants were provided a copy of the PSA test results from January 2012, and specifically excluded himself as being advised in receiving the test results. And then finally, of relevance, is paragraph 32 of the complaint, in which the plaintiff alleges that defendants continued as plaintiff's primary medical care providers until January of 2019. When read in conjunction with the complaint, those portions of the plaintiff's memorandum of law do not contain any true new allegations or new evidence that's not already alleged in the complaint. They're simply logical inferences that plaintiff is asking the trial court to make, and that the trial court should draw based upon the allegations already contained in the complaint, and a potential forecast of what evidence the plaintiff expects to find should discovery proceed forth. Assuming for purposes of discussion that these additional factual materials were, or statements, were outside the complaint, given that they were contained in the plaintiff's document, are you prejudiced by consideration of that in any way? Well, Your Honor, that actually touches on an interesting question as to the purpose of the Rule 12b-6 to Rule 56 conversion, and that is it is a shield to protect the, for lack of a better term, ambushed party from not having an opportunity to address this new evidence. I would submit that on the facts of this case, where the motion was in fact granted, there was no prejudice. However, if under a similar situation where we change up the facts a little bit and say that defendants had then submitted new evidence or something similar to this, and the plaintiff was unaware, and then plaintiff lost, then yes, that would be prejudice. The plaintiff in its brief argues on a couple of occasions that you did in fact submit additional evidence. I'm looking at page 19 of their brief where it says, quote, more specifically in their brief, the bureaus, if that's how you pronounce it, claim that Mr. Blue, quote, knew of his January 2012 test results in January of 2012, and they cite the record page 64. Your Honor, that argument was made by Ms. Becker at the trial court, but again, that is not a new allegation. That is a response to what the plaintiff alleged in his reply, which addresses the statute of limitations and the last clear chance, and therefore is an argument of counsel dealing with the issue of the statute of limitations and would not be included as a new material outside of the complaint. And that being said, those portions of plaintiff's memorandum simply don't contain factual evidence or allegations. 
Rather, the memoranda reiterated, and this is from the Carlisle case, the current status of the law and only presented before the trial court the legal issue of whether the claims against the defendants were barred by the statute of limitations. And when read with the continuing course of treatment doctrine and I guess subsequently and a little bit related to that, the discovery provisions of Rule 1-15C, what plaintiff is attempting to show to the trial court in his memorandum of law and his oral argument supports this is that the complaint as is is sufficient. We would disagree. The trial court clearly disagreed, but that was his argument. And the majority of the Court of Appeals didn't really reach the issue of whether the complaint survived your statute of limitations challenge, did it? I know Judge Hampson talked about it in his dissent, but that's not in the majority. That is correct, Your Honor. The majority addressed solely the conversion aspect. So we have the opinion of one of the three members of the panel on that question, but not all three. That is correct, Your Honor. Could the Court of Appeals majority have taken that issue up? Possibly. Could they have, had they resolved it and taken it up in defendant's favor, then it would have negated their decision on the Rule 12-56 conversion, but they chose not to do so. But Judge Hampson, in his analysis, did find the substantive issue of whether or not the statute of limitations was an ultimate bar to be somewhat dispositive on the conversion question as well. Then are you saying that implicit in the majority's conclusion that there was a conversion, that you have to sort of, in order to then do what the Court of Appeals did here, you'd have to kind of assume that they thought that the complaint by itself survived 12-6? I think based upon, again, not knowing the inner workings of the minds of the specific judges on the Court of Appeals, I think that you cannot assume that, that what they at best determined was that the issue had not risen before them as the conversion was dispositive to them. And I think that is part of what Judge Hampson specifically disagrees with, based upon that he found that it wasn't a conversion, and even arguendo that it was, it doesn't matter because it's ultimately time-barred anyway. But again, I would hesitate to speculate as to the inferences and the inner workings of the minds of any member of the Court of Appeals beyond what they put on the written page. And I don't think you can necessarily make that full leap to they believe that the substantive motion was not meritorious. And so having addressed the memorandum of law, we turn now to the arguments of counsel at the November 12, 2019 hearing. And we've already touched on that a little bit. But I would reiterate somewhat of a, for lack of a better term, an old saw, and that is that it is axiomatic that arguments of counsel are not evidence. And here, and really that kind of underlines not only here, but also the traditional view that oral arguments are not considered matters outside the pleadings for purposes of converting a Rule 12 motion into a Rule 56 motion. As I previously stated, the entire crux of plaintiff's argument at the trial court was that his claim was not time-barred, and I'll quote him here, and that what was contained in the complaint, the continued care, preventative care, and the allegation, this is from page 15 of the transcript, was sufficient to survive the motion to dismiss. 
all of plaintiff's arguments at the hearing, and these really are condensed into pages 9 through 12 of the transcript, were focused on why the continuing course of treatment doctrine was sufficiently pled. The arguments there were assertions and arguments as to what inferences should be drawn from the facts alleged. They weren't specific evidence. They didn't, he didn't say, Judge, look at this medical record. This shows that this claim should fail. He merely is making his arguments. And the references to the reply to the answer, and that, I think that is a little bit, I won't say confusing, but it complicates the analysis a little bit because here you had the complaint. Defendants then filed a motion to dismiss and answer. And plaintiff then filed a reply addressing, as a pleading, the statute of limitations issue. And so a lot of what was in the reply, which dealt with, uh, I think, a last clear chance and continuing course of treatment, which was ultimately argued before the trial court, was addressed in the memorandum of law. And to exclude the answer, which is also the motion to dismiss, and the reply from what the trial court can consider, uh, it really goes beyond what has traditionally been matters outside of the pleadings. It would then move it into the actual court file itself. Uh, it would almost result in the trial court's order having to be one that says, considering the complaint, but not the answer, and not the reply. Yes, the memorandum of law, but not these three paragraphs. And yes, the argument of counsel, but not this portion of arguments of counsel, into the order to make it clear what the court ruled upon. And that's simply not been the jurisprudence of this state, and frankly, not the practice at the trial court level at any time. When the order is clear, where the record is clear, and I would submit to the court that it is in this case, Rule 56 conversion is not required. In fact, at the hearing itself, Judge Adams commented that she has read the complaint, showing once again that, again, not wishing to speculate upon the inner mind of any particular justice or judge, that she knew and was focused on the complaint and not any supposedly extraneous materials. Now, the Court of Appeals did cite to the Brantley v. Watson case as support for its conclusion, and I would submit to this court that, that Brantley is simply distinguishable this on a number of, from this case on a number of grounds. Uh, first off, Brantley involved a, the validity of a post-nuptial agreement and petitioner's dissent from the will of his deceased wife in which he sought for his statutory year allowance. Um, the respondents moved to dismiss, and that was <coughs> granted by the clerk of court, who found that the post-nuptial agreement was void as a matter of law. Um, sorry, denied by the clerk of court. The respondents then appealed to the Wake County Superior Court, which was both acting as a a court of review and somewhat for a court of first impression and the trial court who then reversed the decision of the clerk in an order that had both details findings of fact and conclusions of law. Uh, and setting aside the difference between a, a will exception and a medical malpractice litigation, which is, um, I can't even say it's comparing apples and oranges, it's like comparing fish to corn. Um, it's not even in the same family. The, um, the court was required to even be able to render a decision in that case then the Supreme Superior Court to consider matters outside the pleadings and to find facts and whether the clerk's initial order was correct or not. 
Here, there's no requirement that Judge Adams had to go look for something to resolve this case on the motion before her, which was, did the complaint state a statute of limitations defense or whether or not it survived that analysis? This case is actually more analogous to that of a 2000, sorry, 1989 case from the Court of Appeals called King versus Cape Fear Memorial Hospital. And in that case, um, again, which was dismissed pursuant to Rule 12b-6 as barred by the statute of limitations, in addition to the complaint, the trial judge considered the following on defendant's motions. Uh, the plaintiff's motions to make more definite and certain and to deny hearing on defendant's Rule 12b-6 motion, as well as memorandum and affidavit in support of that, defendant's supplemental motion to dismiss for failure to state a claim, and then the defendant's response to plaintiff's motion to make more definite and certain the 12b-6 motion. The Court of Appeals concluded that those materials constituted only requests, explanations, and arguments of counsel on both sides with respect to the Rule 12b-6 motions. And as such, they are not matters outside the pleadings within the meaning of Rule 12b-6. Counsel, counsel, you're well within your rebuttal time. Thank you, Your Honor. Turning very quickly, Your Honor, the additional materials in this were always directed, to the extent that they are additional, to the Rule 12b-6 motion to dismiss, and they were not outside the pleadings. Such a requirement would essentially negate Rule 12b-6, because at any time, if, if the Court of Appeals is correct, that plaintiff's counsel can simply say, here's this new fact that I would like you to consider and think about, well, there is no more Rule 12b-6. That's somewhat of a, of a logical extreme, but Rule 12b-6 still exists and is still a test for the complaint itself. Now, turning to whether or not the substantive claim of the statute of limitations, uh, there's really three dates that are important as alleged in the complaint, and there's really only two that appear in the complaint, and one of them appears in the file stamp on the front of it, and that is January 22nd, 2004, March 24th of 2018, and June 17th of 2019. And those are the first PSA test, the second PSA test, and the date of filing. Uh, plaintiff has argued that a continuing course of treatment is applicable here. I would submit to the court that based upon my brief, that is a very narrow exception. It has always been a narrow exception and does not apply, apply in cases where the course of treatment is a general one. Otherwise, you would not have any statute of limitations for primary care providers. Something that they <coughs> got wrong 15 years ago, so long as they continue to see the plaintiff, could be the basis for a lawsuit tomorrow, if the plaintiff's contentions are correct. Uh, the plaintiff is also asking this court to expand <coughs> and adopt what has been called the <coughs> me, continuing violation doctrine. That has never been adopted by this court in this state in the context of medical malpractice. The legislature is perfectly capable of adopting such a concept as it has done with 1-15C and adopting the discovery provision. And I would ask that the court not consider that and not expand what has traditionally been a narrow exception to the statute of limitations in this court. Um, finally, as to whether or not there was even a proper motion to amend made 
Uh, I would submit to the court that there simply wasn't. Uh, at the end of a hearing, which had been noticed for three months and then wasn't actually ruled upon for a month, the plaintiff's counsel stood up and said, Judge, if you're going to do this, I'd like to have an opportunity to amend. That's not a motion. That is, at best, a contingent request. And the court was not required to grant it. Had they granted it, plaintiff would have been, defendants would have been prejudiced, as at that point, we don't even know what they're going to amend. And so, based upon Judge Hampson's dissent and the totality of the reasons set forth in the brief in today's argument, the bureaus would ask that the court conclude that their motion to dismiss was not required to be converted to a Rule 56 motion for summary judgment, reverse the decision of the majority panel of the Court of Appeals, and affirm Judge Adams' order granting defendants' motion to dismiss as plaintiff's claims are time-barred by the statute of limitations and repose. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My name is Chris Edwards, and I represent the appellee, Charles Blue. <clears throat> we think that the Court of Appeals reached the right result, regardless of which avenue the court takes to get there. Uh, I'd like to start with the discussion that Mr. Moyers had with the court concerning the conversion of a Rule 12 motion into a Rule 56 motion. But even if the court were to disagree with me on that issue, I think that the complaint as alleged is sufficient at this stage and considering the court's liberal no set of facts pleading standard to trigger the continuing course of treatment doctrine at least at least enough to get to discovery. It's sufficient to get to discovery based on the continuing course of treatment doctrine and the facts alleged in the complaint. And finally, I'd like to touch on the continuing violation doctrine. Turning first to the conversion issue, we do believe that the trial court considered matters outside of the pleadings. Um, Mr. Moyers has said Judge, that Judge Adams did not need to consider matters outside of the pleadings to resolve the Rule 12 motion, but in point of fact, she did. And it's not so much... Well, well she, she said she considered various filings. Uh, you, unless I'm missing something, that's what your argument relies on. Am I missing something, first of all? No, Justice Sir, you were not. So, you, so you're asking us to infer from the fact that she considered various filings that she therefore considered in the course of her analysis isolated factual statements that appear at various portions of those filings? And I, I want to be very clear about, about what I'm asking for. Yes, in a sense, but please let me clarify. Sure, uh, absolutely. Not interested in parsing... Uh, or asking this court to require trial courts to parse the complaint or the answer or the reply. I think there may be a, a question about whether that is a 12C or a 12B6, but I, I, it's not material. Um, my, and I'm not asking the court to parse the trial counsel statements, Mr. Blue's trial counsel statements, because I think as and, said, and in your defense, you were not the trial counsel. I was not trial counsel. Right. No, you're right. I was. I was retained. So, so, you, so you have you have uh, you, you have deniability in the sense that you weren't there and you don't know what happened, other than the same way we do. That's correct, Your Honor. Okay. Uh, not asking the court to consider Mr. Blue's trial counsel statements either, because I think as Mr. Moyers has conceded, those are consistent with the no set of facts pleading standard indicative of what discovery would show and indicative of a set of facts that we think would support the timeliness of the claim. 
I direct the court specifically to pages 61 through 64 of the record, which is defendant's memorandum in support of its motion for summary judgment, particularly the break between pages 63 and 64. Well, I, I looked at that portion of the record, and, and at least the, the part that you specifically directed our <clears throat> attention to starts off by saying in the complaint it said this, that, or the other. It does. Why, why is that not a reference to what's already in the complaint rather than some additional material that uh, wasn't incorporated within the, the pleading that was before Judge Adams? One of the factual assertions is actually contrary to the standard of review. Um, at I'm, I'm sorry, say that again. One of the, one of the I, I'll call it a factual assertion, one of the assertions of facts in the memo actually draws an inference against Mr. Blue, and it's that inference. That, that is what we are contending to be the new fact. Um, paragraph 26 of the complaint says that Mr. Blue had never discussed prostate screening or treatment with the bureaus prior to his January 2012 visit. Uh, we take that and viewing that in the light most favorable to Mr. Blue, we, we understand that to mean basically that the bureaus got informed consent. They said, hey, you, you need to have a prostate screening. You're 60 years old. We're going to take a, a blood draw to check for this prostate-specific antigen. Um, and then, again, viewing the facts in the light most favorable to Mr. Blue, we take it to mean that he was never followed up with on, that, on the results of that test in 2012. The the defendants have argued and argued at the trial court that he actually did know that fact. And that's, that's the break between page 63 and 64. But, it, but it, at least as I read it, and correct me if I'm misreading it, it seemed to me that the argument that was made at that page break was in essence an argument that the trial court ought to construe the complaint in a particular way. Is that a misapprehension of what was said in your view? I think it... In, in, in some sense, it is, an, it is an argument that the trial court should construe the complaint in, in a certain way. Because it, the sentence, the, the operative sentence starts out something like, as is said in the complaint, or the complaint says, or something like that. But it, it's, in this specific context, I think it is so plainly contrary to what the complaint said that the trial court should have excluded that sentence from but, its consideration. With the exception of the portion of the record that you and I have just been talking about, it looked to me as if everything else that you cited in your brief as additional facts was information, material, whatever you want to call it, that was introduced by your predecessor counsel rather than by the defendants. Is that The fair? vast majority of the new information did come in. The trial court had, the trial court did come in through plaintiff's counsel at the trial level. Uh, how, how would you be prejudiced in any way by the consideration of additional fact material that you, your predecessor counsel introduced into the discussion? I, I don't believe that I would be prejudiced, Your Honor. So, I, doesn't, so doesn't your argument really hinge on uh, the particular portion of the record that you and I were talking about a minute ago on page 64 approximately? It does, Your Honor. That's correct. I mean, so basically if we agree with you, you win. If we don't, you lose. If the court agrees with me 
we win. I, I'd agree with that. If the court disagrees with me, I think we need to determine de novo what the complaint actually alleges and whether it matches up with the continuing course of treatment doctrine. Well, would it, would it make sense for us to decide that, or would it make sense for us to, since we have the opinion of two, only one of the three members of the Court of Appeals, uh, would it make more sense to remand it for a consideration of that issue by the Court of Appeals? I figured I would get that question. Um, the, the well, your, your omniscience is impressive, then. The, the, uh, I think it's our position that this Court has the power and the ability to consider. I, don't, I mean, I don't think there's any question that we've got the authority. There's a, there's a prudential question of what we should do. I think this Court should consider it, okay. and I, I, I'll tell you why. As we've pointed out in our brief, there appears to be at least a, di a bit of a disconnect between this Court's opinion in Horton and several of the opinions that have followed Horton from the Court of Appeals. Uh, they tend to rely on stallings. And this, moving to the continuing course of treatment doctrine. Um, okay, I, figured we get there. I figured we'd get there sooner or later. So there's a, there's a, there is, I think, a split of authority, or at least it's unclear, whether the continuing course of treatment doctrine is a claim accrual rule or whether it is a tolling rule. Um, I, I hate to parse the court's opinion in Horton, but I will. Uh, the, the opinion in Horton in three paragraphs sets out kind of the background of the continuing course of treatment doctrine as the Court of Appeals has articulated it, makes some comments on it, in the next paragraph sets out a very general statement about what it is and how it applies, and then the final paragraph says we've adopted it and we expressly decline to, a pass, on, to pass on whether the Court of Appeals, the features of this doctrine adopted by the Court of Appeals are right or wrong. And so one of the comments the court makes in connection with the discussion of the Court of Appeals opinions is that it's a tolling rule and not an accrual rule, which is what the Stallings Court held. Um, we think that the, the statement that we're declining to pass on whether the Court of Appeals is right or wrong leaves that as an open question as to whether it is an accrual or a tolling rule. But maybe the court did tip its hand in the Horton case. Um, we think that it's better understood to be an accrual rule, and, and let me explain for a moment why that's important to Mr. Blue's case. Um, I think it's well settled that equitable tolling doctrines don't toll the statute of repose, and so if the act of negligence here occurred in 2012, even if continuing course of treatment can toll the statute of limitations, it wouldn't affect the statute of repose. And for a number of policy reasons, we don't think that that makes sense. As we pointed out in our brief, and I don't intend to direct the court to any specific state's jurisprudence about the contours of the doctrine, other than to say a, a large number of states, and I think there, uh, many of them are cited in the Lane against Lane case from the Supreme Court of Arkansas, uh, a number of states have adopted this as an accrual limitation. And that's, that's significant for Mr. Blue because applying the continuing course of treatment doctrine here looking at this court's jurisprudence and applying the no set of facts doctrine we've got the no set of facts pleading standard mr blue goes in for a psa test he then has regularly seen the bureaus for a number of years he goes to he sees them for 20 years regularly for preventative care and there is a set of facts within that general framework that could indicate that he had a continuing course of treatment specifically for his, his prostate health rather than a, just a general physician relationship. And so it's, it's our position that, you know, to distinguish between the two, 
there is, I guess, a question of whether it's this is somebody you go see when you have a pulled muscle or a broken bone or an upset stomach versus somebody you go back to year after year after year for the same type of treatment. And in that context, year after year after year, that's a, that's a continuing course of treatment. I recognize that's probably kind of an extreme end of the continuing course of treatment doctrine, but it should be continuous enough based on the facts to fall within what, what my friend on the other side has said should be a narrow exception. Just finishing up, um, I, I want to go back and touch on a couple points before I lose the, my train of thought concerning the facts, not an evidence issue. The Court of Appeals has indicated you can look at memoranda, uh, Justice Servants, but back to our, back our colloquy. The Court of Appeals has suggested in two cases, that's the Privet case and then the um, Erie Insurance Exchange case from 2013. The Court of Appeals has said, well, we're going to look at the memoranda. Well, in Privet it says, the memoranda aren't in the record, so we don't know whether these contain facts, not in evidence. And in Erie Insurance, it actually goes on to consider the memoranda and consider the contents of them to determine whether the conversion was appropriate. And so to, to, to Mr. Moyer's point, I think that this court very well could go through and consider the memoranda line by line and say that this is a fact that's not in evidence. This is an inference drawn adverse to the plaintiff in violation of the pleading standard. And so it was improper for the trial court to consider that and therefore not exclude it. But again, even if the court doesn't, we think that the continuing course of treatment doctrine should apply. Um, the, another important point about the continuing course of treatment doctrine, I think that if it's not a accrual rule as opposed to a tolling rule, I think that it would conflict with this court's decision in Hargett against Holland. The, that's in applying 1-15 sub C to the legal malpractice context. Uh, Hargett suggests that the last act triggering the statute of repose ends on the day that the tortfeasor's duty ends. And in that case, the question was whether the, the lawyer had a continuing duty to update uh, a client's will. The court concluded there wasn't a duty, but it did suggest that if there had been a continuing duty to update that will, that continuing duty would have told the statute of repose as opposed to just the failure to update the will appropriately at the time the will was drafted, which was when the act of negligence reportedly occurred. And so again, here we think that the, the January 2012 test, he's got several years of treatment. Uh, it should be sufficient for the court to infer based on the facts alleged in the complaint, that he had a continuing course of treatment with, these, with the bureaus, and that should be enough to toll the statute of repose, which means that it did not start running until the last act of negligence, which occurred no earlier than June of 2000, March of 2018, when he received the elevated PSA test. Even if the court disagrees with me on the continuing course of care doctrine, uh, there is authority supporting the application of the continuing duty doctrine in this context. This court's adopted the continuing duty doctrine, so this would be an application of a, an, an old doctrine to a new set of facts. Uh, other courts, other courts of last resort across the country have done this. We've specifically cited the Supreme Court of Connecticut in the Anchor Sora case. But in addition, I think the, uh, the case from the Supreme Court of, of Virginia, um, Farley against Good, is also kind of bridges the gap between the continuing course of treatment and the continuing duty. 
uh, in that case, the Supreme Court of Virginia indicates that the entire relationship is inherently negligent, that there's negligence in every follow-up appointment. And so that's a continuing harm that the plaintiff suffers. Finally, with respect to the motion to amend, um, we've argued it in our brief, and I believe that uh, I believe Judge Hampson did touch on the motion to amend in his dissenting opinion. Um, that said, the the dissenting opinion, I, I think that the facts that were argued at the trial court could reasonably be inferred from the complaint, and so there there doesn't need to be leave to amend. But assuming one was to treat it as an amendment motion, the issue, and also assuming that it was denied. Uh, the question before a reviewing court would be, in essence, was there any rational basis for the denial, right? That's right, Your Honor. Um, assuming that it is, assuming it is a valid motion to amend, and I think, I think there is evidence to suggest that and that it was denied. Well, I mean, just making, but making those two assumptions. Right, and I do think there's evidence that it was sub silentio denied. Um, there, is a ra there was not a rational basis for the denial. Um, all I've heard from the other side is, is the issue of prejudice. This case was three months old. Well, talk, talk to me a little bit about it comes up for the first time at the end of the hearing. I mean, there's, there, there's one of the recognized bases for denial of a motion to amend is delay. Why, why, you know, why would it not be rational for a trial court to say, well, you waited till the, not only the 11th hour, but the 11th hour and the 50th minute, and then uh, suggested that, that you'd like to amend without even really telling me a whole lot about what you want to say in your amendment? Why would it be irrational for a trial court to say, we're not going to go there? A couple of reasons, Your Honor. First, talking about uh, the contents of the amendment. I think the contents of the amendment, you know, to the extent that there needed to be additional facts, I think the contents of the amendment had been fleshed out at the hearing. Um, but in addition to that, a lot of the cases, and particularly the cases cited in the Bureau's new brief, they don't come up in the motion to dismiss context. Delay, prejudice, those are things that happen after discovery is closed. Um, the, the pleadings in this case had just closed. There had been no discovery taken. And so it made sense, or it, it makes sense that Mr. Blue should be allowed to amend his complaint at that point to further flesh out his theory. If the trial court thought the complaint was insufficient, and as we've discussed, I do not think that it was, but if there needed to be some additional facts included in the complaint, at that point, I don't know how there could have been prejudice uh, to Mr. Blue, uh, excuse me, there could have been prejudice to the bureaus based on the the procedural posture of the case. Again, the case was four months old. This isn't a case where we're on the eve of trial. This isn't a case where discovery is closed. This isn't a case where we're, we're at the pretrial conference and somebody makes a motion to amend. Those are the types of bad faith and delay that we typically see. But in terms of prejudice, there's been no discovery taken, and it's pretty clear that it's not going to change the theory of the case that the continuing course of treatment doctrine applies. And so it's just to add additional facts. It's not to change the theory. It's not to add a new claim. Uh, it's, it's early in the case's life. And so for all those reasons, I think that it was irrational for the trial court to deny the motion to amend. If the court has no further questions. Well, well, I would like to ask a question about your response. And this may be implicit in something you said earlier. But going back to the um, continuing course of care, 
doctrine and how it applies here. What's your response to what I understand the defendant's argument to be that to apply that to a primary care physician um, would essentially mean there's no statute of limitations for anything? I don't think that's necessarily true. I think the, um, people go to primary care physicians for a variety of reasons. I think Mr. Blue chose to utilize his primary care physicians to do uh, preventative prostate screenings. Maybe, maybe somebody, maybe another person might make a rational decision to go to a urologist for that. But in, in most primary treating relationships, I would, I would submit, and I don't have facts to back this up, but I would, I, you know, I would submit somebody goes for a variety of ailments or routine physical. And in that case, I think it's different than somebody using the primary care provider, as Mr. Blue did, at, under the applicable pleading standard for routine prostate care. Uh, I think that is the difference. It's based on the, the nature of the relationship. Um, you know, saying that there wouldn't be a statute of limitations, I don't know that, that that's necessarily true. The court's already adopted the continuing course of care doctrine, and if it applies to delay the last act of negligence, that fits within 1-15 sub C. That, that is consistent with the text of that, so long as it delays the last act of negligence. It's not creating some sort of new exception or extending an old exception. It's just giving everybody, it's just giving patients access to uh, the legal system when there has been negligent medical care, something they couldn't know or something that they didn't want to disrupt because they thought was going well. Um, I understand a tr more traditional set of facts might be, for example, a surgeon maintaining someone in a hospital for three or four weeks. Um, but again, I think that on the, under the pleading standard and on the facts of this case, uh, as, as alleged in the complaint, there is, it, is, it is applicable in these circumstances. Thank you. If the court has no further questions, I'll submit my case on the brief. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Your Honor, very briefly address the continuing course of treatment doctrine argument. Traditionally, the continuing course of treatment doctrine is, is a narrow but flexible exception to the statute of limitation that allows for application to a variety of facts within the MedMal context. Um, you've seen cases including Black v. Littlejohn, the Stallings case, Callahan v. Rogers decided in the complaint uh, that apply it in a flexible way. Unfortunate thing about flexibility is it's not always uh, consistent, but that is depending upon the variety of facts that occur in med mal cases. What the plaintiff is attempting to do today is expand it to the point that would eviscerate the statute of limitations as to primary care practitioners and general practitioners in direct contravention of the statutory legislative purpose to 1-15 as set forth in Black v. Littlejohn. And I would ask the court to find that in this case and on these facts as pled that the statute of limitation does time bar the complaint. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Thank you to both.